0: Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. I'm going to put an illustration up on the screen this morning. This comes from 1814. That's not the illustration. The next one. There we go. Yeah. This comes from 1814. American Baptist Foreign Mission Society puts out this symbol. And uh, you can see pictured here, they have the, the plow and the altar. Because that was their understanding of your two options in following Christ. There was the plow, the work that God had for you. Or there was the altar, the sacrifice. The plow or the altar. Work, sacrifice. See, every person who's ever walked the face of the earth, we have to find a reason to get ourselves up in the morning, don't we? We have to find some reason that keeps us going through the difficulties and trials of the things that we face. And the American Foreign Baptist Mission uh, kind of put this in front of us, that if we follow Christ, these are our two options. We either put our hands to the plow or we put our lives on the altar I remember walking down the halls of my high school, went to a public school, walking down the halls of my high school, realizing that this person did this this weekend, and this person did this this weekend, and they would tell you all about it, and it sunk in with me that these people spent five days, they went through the the week for five days to live for two, and I thought that's just hopeless in so many ways. See, the passage in front of us today seeks not only to convince us that Jesus is worth dying for, it also presses the point that Jesus is worth living for. So here's our big idea. See, salvation sweetens our life. And our death. Salvation in Christ actually colors everything that we do. It's like a pair of glasses that we put on that actually formulates and, and shapes and, and defines the world that we live in so that the troubles that we have take on a Christ centered shape and the difficulties, the work that we do takes on a Christ centered shape. The, uh, the relationships that we have take on a Christ centered shape. And even our death takes on a Christ centered shape shape here's how paul wants to say this to us first he's sure of his coming salvation in life or death in verses 18 through 26 and then he turns the mirror around on the philippians and he encourages the philippians to stand firm without fear so I want to dive in. I want to dive in in chapter 1, verse 18, as we continue in our time through Philippians. As we've kind of gone through this time, we've, we've seen a couple different phases of what Paul has been saying. And Philippians chapter 1, as he introduced the chapter, he thanked God for his partners in the defense of the gospel. And Paul's laying out, in that sense, this, this kind of idea of defending the gospel. And then in the second phrase that we looked at last week in verses 12 through 18, he, he talks about his proclamation of the gospel. And so he's been saying, okay, there's defense of the gospel, there's proclamation of the gospel, and when we get to verse 27, he's going to say that there's a manner of life that's worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what we see is defense of the gospel, proclamation of the gospel, and conduct in keeping with the gospel, and Paul is inviting us into this gospel reflection, this gospel education here in Philippians chapter 1. With that in mind, we turn to verses 18 through 26, where Paul is going to be sure of this salvation. Now, this might take on a different color than what we expect. Look at verse 18, the second half. He says, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul starts, and he's sure of this coming salvation. And he starts off, and he looks toward this future joy. In fact, that's what he's saying. In the second half of verse 18, he's saying, yes, and I will rejoice. Now, that's a future tense verb. He's not talking about, I am going to rejoice right now. He's saying, I will rejoice. And it's actually held in tension with what he just said in verse 18, where he says, uh, because of, uh, that's not right. Verse 18, he said, and in that, I rejoice. In his present circumstances, he's presently rejoicing. But then he says, I will rejoice. Well, what cause does Paul have for future rejoicing? On verse 20, he gives us the clearest answer. He says that, that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. See, Paul's rejoicing because either way, His body will lead to honor for Jesus Christ. He fleshes this out in verses 21 through 24. Look at 21 through 24 with me again. He says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. See, Paul's imprisonment shows him these two options. Paul can live on in fruitful labor. That's what he says in verses 22 and 24. And if Paul anticipates that he's going to be acquitted, In fact, that's what he kind of comes down to in verses 25. He's convinced that he will stay for the fruitfulness of these Philippians, that they would be encouraged by his ongoing life. But the second option is that he would die and be with Christ. In verse 21, he says that the dying is to die is gain. In verse 23, my desire is to depart and be with with Jesus. See, if Paul is put to death, he anticipates an eternity with Christ. But if he lives, he anticipates a present day of fruitful ministry. Look at how Paul actually anticipates this playing out in verses 25 and 26. He's convinced that he's going to see these Philippian believers again. He's convinced that he's going to remain for the sake of the Philippians. Talking about a bummer, right? Like you're writing a letter to these people that you love, and you're saying, I could go and be with Jesus, but I guess I'm stuck with you guys, (laughs) Right? right? Paul doesn't have that attitude. But still, Paul is convinced he will remain for the sake of these Philippians. We have no reason to think that Paul ever made it back. Uh, Eusebius was a, a church historian. He thinks that Paul died around 64 AD, that he was beheaded under Nero in Rome. And so we have reason to believe that Paul never left Rome after this, that he was put under house arrest like the book of Acts closes out. And it's only a short matter of time bef- between the, the ending of the book of Acts and the writing of these few different letters from his imprisonment and his captivity and then a- his eventual death. But he's not convinced what Paul is saying is that he's, he's confident. He's not prophesying anything that's going to happen. See, he's convinced that he'll remain for their progress and joy in the faith, as verse 25 says. See, what Paul shows us in these verses, and I love this, he shows us an earthly citizenship looking toward heaven. Paul shows us his suffering as an earthly citizen. You ever Notice that here in these verses, Paul's earthly life was was not one to envy, was it? Paul has a life marked by difficulty and suffering. In fact, we could probably make the case here this morning that Paul's life got harder After his conversion to Jesus Christ. Before he was in Jesus, before he came to know Jesus, Paul was kind of the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was uh, kind of on the upward track in terms of just, uh, you know, he had um, upward mobility, as you would say today. He was on the right track to be respected and honored in his community. There was no tension with him and spiritual authorities. In fact, he was a growing spiritual authority. But after he came to Jesus Christ, He continually embraces more and more difficulty for the cause of the gospel. We see this in his missionary journeys in Acts 13 and 14. Paul preaches the gospel boldly. He sees conversions, and then there's immediate pushback from the Jewish community in those towns. And Paul sees that trajectory play out throughout the book of Acts and the remainder of his life. See, remember last week, Paul told us of these two different circumstances that are particularly difficult for him, that that bring about his humility and and, uh, kind of make him rely on God's goodness. That first, he was imprisoned in verses 12 through 14. He described that last week, that he's in prison for the sake and the cause of the gospel. And then in verses 15 through 18, that he has these kind of rivals who seek to afflict him. And here, he's telling us about his possible death. See, Paul shows us his suffering as an earthly citizen. But Paul has reason for this. He has reason for this suffering. Paul shows us the hope of his heavenly citizenship. I'm going to pull up a diagram. Anthony's going to pull it up for us. See, what Paul is describing is he's saying, my life as an earthly citizen is is marked by a continual humility. So that first he's in prison, and then he's opposed. And now he's seeking that he might be remaining in the flesh, and he's going to go on in this life of difficulty. But what he's also holding out is the possibility that he might actually go to be with Christ. Go ahead and flip to the next slide there. He recognizes that as a heavenly citizen, that he can depart and be with Christ himself. See, Paul consistently turns our attention away from his negative earthly circumstances, and he draws our attention to his heavenly circumstance. In fact, that's what's going to happen throughout this book of the Philippians, is we're going to see those who embrace humility, embrace humility, embrace humility, and pursue an exaltation from Jesus Christ. See, we might look and say Paul's continued life means ongoing imprisonment and opposition, but he sees fruitful labor. We might look and see that his death is the worst option, but he sees being present with Christ. Paul is doing exactly what he's told us to do in Colossians chapter 3. He's seeking the things above where Christ is and not the things of the earth. See, you and I live in this same world that Paul lived in, don't we? It might be two thousand years later, but it still has the same pressures. Still has the same difficulties. You and I live in the midst of two realities. You ever hear the, the phrase that somebody is so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good? I don't get that phrase. See, we are citizens of earth. We face the problems of a sin-cursed world. We face social and relational consequences of sin. We face economic and political consequences of sin. Uh, We seek to help those who face those problems. We do ministry. We stand alongside those who are hurting, those who are going through hard times. But we're also citizens of heaven through a resurrected Jesus Christ. See, we also have the responsibility of living out God's priority here and now. We go about our life with a moral code which we did not create. We seek to live out that code, and when we do, or when we don't, when we fall short, we confess and we repent. See, this heavenly responsibility puts us at odds with the world around us. And when we live this two kingdom kind of living, where we live with our feet on the ground and our head in the clouds, that puts us in a difficult spot. See, we take seriously the responsibilities given to us on earth, but we do it with the hope that Jesus has given us in his resurrection. Now see, what Paul wants to do is he wants to remind these Philippians that they too are living in this same dynamic That they too are living in this world that uh, has these pressures and difficulties, but they also have this hope in Jesus Christ. That's why in verses 27 through 30, Paul encourages the Philippians to stand firm without fear. Look at this passage in verses 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, first, in verses 27 and 28, he expresses concern for their conduct. Look at what he says. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This term, manner of life, it's kind of a a citizenship term. It has this idea, this notion of being a citizen of of a country or of a city. Philippi, as a city, was a port city. And they had all this military background and military history. So, a lot of people had been previously involved in the Roman military. And when you talked citizenship, their heart beat, right? See, Paul is saying that their behavior as a citizen be worthy of their king. And he's calling them to say, if you believe in the gospel, let your manner of citizenship in the heavenly citizenship that you have in Christ, let it be worthy of the calling that you have in the gospel of Jesus. And what he does is he plays out and he spells out three areas for them to be particularly noticeable of. He wants to bring that idea, this gospel citizenship, this manner of life down to these three areas. And he says first that they stand firm in verse 27. He says, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm. See, Paul's concerned that they not abandon the gospel itself, either in thought or in action. He wants them to contend for the faith, but not lose it. He's concerned that these Philippian believers might actually just lose the foundation that they have. Now remember, back in chapter 1, verse 6, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion. See, Paul has this rich trust that God will complete what he starts, but he also recognizes that these Philippians have to continue in the faith. He calls them to unity in verse 27. He says, uh, that I may hear of you, that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. See, he's concerned that these Philippian believers would not just stand firm in the faith, but they would stand firm together with one another. Later on in this book, Paul is going to address two women in this congregation. He's going to say, I plead with you, Euodia, and I plead with you, Syntyche, that you agree with one another in the Lord. See, we're given a situation that's happening in the church at Philippi that is uh, apparently a division that everyone knows about. And Paul's calling them to a specific unity. You might be familiar with this. When we're pressured, it's an easy way for us to elevate our disagreements and minimize what we have in common. See, Paul desires that the Philippian church to remain side by side, by avoiding any unnecessary division, right? There's necessary division when other brothers or sisters or people we thought were brothers or sisters aren't faithful with the gospel, we we clarify and we divide as sees, sees fit, as we see fit. But when things are secondary and tertiary issues, to divide over such things is out of line with the gospel that we believe. See, Paul calls us to stand firm. He calls us to unity. And finally, in verse 28, he calls us to be unafraid. That's what he says. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. You know, there's no bigger threat to our gospel fidelity and our gospel unity than fear. There's no bigger threat to our gospel fidelity, our faithfulness in gospel doctrine and gospel living than Fear. There's no bigger threat to our unity than just being afraid. See, fearful people tend to do drastic things. What we want to do is have a a heart that resonates with the gospel. And because we recognize that God is powerful and powerful enough to save us, we have confidence that he'll accomplish his work and his people. See, Paul concludes this section in verses 29 through 30. And what he does is he kind of turns it around and he finds a solidarity with these Philippian people again. See, the Philippians are called to faith, and in the midst of that faith is suffering. Look at verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. You know, after, At the end of Paul's missionary journey, his first one, in Acts 14, he goes back to all of the... Ch- uh, cities where he's seen conversions happen. And he collects all of these believers together and he appoints elders. And then it says that he said this, he, he was strengthening the souls of the disciples. He was encouraging them, them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. It's Paul's message. Talk about a bummer of an outline. Many tribulations, that's how we enter the kingdom. And i got to tell you, folks, there's not much that's changed in 2,000 years. If you are in Christ, you should anticipate difficulty. You should anticipate hard times specifically tied to what you believe. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 3, different people, different context, different place, he says that they were destined for these afflictions. And so Paul finds this solidarity with them. And he goes on in verse 30, he says, "Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here that I still have. I am imprisoned. I have rivals who preach the gospel, but dislike me. I am facing life and death, and you're in it with me." That's what Paul is saying. The question before us this morning is, are we in it with Paul too? Do we also face the difficulties and sufferings that God has promised those who trust in Christ? Of course we do. See, our patterns as earthly citizens reveal our heavenly priorities. Our patterns as earthly citizens reveal our heavenly priorities. Paul calls the Philippians to a manner of life that is rich in the gospel. Take a look at verse 28 kind of quickly went over this before, but he says that we would not be frightened in anything by our opponents. And listen to what he says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. What does Paul say is the proof of salvation in this verse? And the answer is our conduct in keeping with the gospel. Heading back up to 27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. See, our conduct in keeping with the gospel is the thing that gives us confidence of our future hope in Christ. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 8. I think it's in verse 13. He says, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. He says it this way. The Bible says it in Hebrews chapter 12. It's those who are sanctified, without the sanctification, no one will see the Lord. Our confidence, our assurance is bound up with our righteous conduct. See, Paul tells us that this is the convicting work of the unbelieving. And it's the assuring work for the believing. Think about that. We get assurance from our righteous conduct, from walking in step with the Spirit. But it also brings conviction to those who aren't in Christ around us. That's what Paul says there in verse 28. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction. See, here's the truth it's possible for us to maintain a gospel doctrine and yet live out earthly priorities. It's possible for us to live, to maintain a gospel doctrine, to have right thoughts about what we think about Jesus, what we think about the Father, what we think about who the body of Christ is, but to have wrong-oriented motives about how we live out our earthly life. Isn't that a possibility? It's possible for us to abandon the faith in our practice, but to maintain a proper theological system. Summer we were going through a, a shepherd at leadership class, and Ray Ortland, we had an article we read by Ray Ortland, and he put up this picture and saying the exact same thing we're saying now. Go ahead and pull up that picture there, Anthony. This makes for a great podcast. So if you can't see the picture this morning, you have a number of Ku Klux Klan members gathered underneath a sign that says, "Jesus saves." It's possible for us to have right notions in our head about what Jesus has done, but to live a life that is completely contrary to the things that he has claimed. Ray Ortland says this He says, Faithfulness to the gospel requires more than doctrinal purity in our churches, it also requires relational beauty in our churches, but it is possible to sincerely or sincerely to preach true doctrine while at the same time utterly deny that doctrine by an ugly anti-gospel life or culture. It's possible for us to know all of the right things, but for our heart to love all of the wrong things. See, the truth is that faith in Jesus shows out Faith in Jesus shows out in our conduct, the way we carry ourselves in love and self-giving to others, the way we pursue pursue purity, the way we spend our money, it plays itself out in our conduct. The, the, The truth is that faith in Jesus plays itself out in our doctrine, the way we think, the way we understand, the way we reason. It shows itself out in our emotion, in the way we live, in the way we conduct ourselves. See, it consistently looks at what this world has to offer and rejects it in preference for the sweet fellowship of Jesus Christ. Is that you? Are you one that looks at what the world has to offer and says, I would rather fellowship with my Savior and have deeper communion with him? See, this is one of those sermons where I can beat you up. I can use this pulpit in all the wrong ways. You can come out with some spiritual black eyes if I'm not careful. I can tell you about all the things you need to do. You need to uh, not smoke or drink or chew or go with girls who do. I've got to stop saying that. It's not funny anymore. You've got to clean yourself up. You've got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You've got to make yourself clean enough and righteous enough and holy enough for God to accept you. The truth is that you and I will leave this room and will be beat up and never change. See, the message of the gospel is different. The message of the gospel doesn't say, clean yourself up, get better so you can be right with God. The message of the gospel says, embrace your wrongness, recognize that you are a sinner in need of grace, and come to Christ. See, Jesus' life was perfectly consistent with his Father's will. If you and I have fallen short of the laws that God had given, Jesus checked every box been reading through the book of John, and I came across this passage this morning from John chapter 14. It's on the screen behind me. John 14. At the close of this chapter, as Jesus is giving his upper room discourse, he's talking to his disciples right before his impending death. He says this, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Let's just break this passage down for a second. Jesus is telling us that Satan has no claim on Jesus. That is Jesus perfect life left the accuser of the brethren speechless. Before the throne of God, there was no claim of unrighteousness in Christ. There was no accusation before the Father on Christ's behalf. He was spotless, flawless, the perfect Lamb. And even in His earthly trial, Jesus stood before sinful men, and they couldn't find anything wrong with Him that was untrue. The accusations were, He claims to be God, which He was. Jesus, secondly, in verse 31, tells us that he did as the Father commanded me, him. Look at verse 31, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Jesus is telling, he's saying consistently through the book of John, what I hear from the Father, that's what I do, and I'm just constantly living in submission to what the Father has called me to do. Jesus is that perfect son in perfect obedience to his Father. And it was his obedience that paid for our disobedience. And it was his death that brought us life. So he says, Satan has no claim on me. I do as the Father commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. We saw that verse in Second Peter chapter 1. With all of its beauty and richness, Peter tells us that we ourselves become participants in the divine nature, that this interplay between the Father and the Son through the resurrection, through our union with Christ, we participate in that, that we know that Jesus loves the Father. We're invited into that rich community through Christ. And this, friends, is how we stand firm as we're united with Christ. We have a great Savior who stood firm first, whose obedience took him all the way to Calvary to pay sin's price, to redeem us for his own purpose that we might stand firm in faith. See, this morning, this is what's true. Only a life centered on Christ Holds promise for a death with reward. Only a life centered in Christ holds promise for a life with reward or for a death with reward. See, so we are those who pursue a greatest greater satisfaction in Christ. We look at those, those people who spend five days living for two. It's not that we say, okay, we're better. No, what we're saying is we can pursue a satisfaction in Christ that's seven days a week. John the Baptist had an interesting statement in the book of John. He's baptizing a lot of people. He's having a very successful ministry. And when it comes out that Jesus' disciples are baptizing more than he is baptizing, he makes this statement. He says, he must increase, I must decrease. Or if your translation is different, he says, he must become more and I must become less. And It actually plays out through the book of John. See, what we hear is less, of less, uh, less and less of John the Baptist's ministry throughout the remainder of the book of John, in more and more of Christ. See, modern Christianity has us thinking that we can increase while Jesus increases. And we can demand more for ourselves. We can demand more comfort. We can demand more uh, pleasure. We can demand more uh, availability. We can, we can demand more for ourselves because we are in Christ. But, but the Bible's telling us consistently to mute ourselves, to push down and say, he must increase, I must decrease. I wonder if we might hear that this morning. and We might look at our difficulties or trials and temptations and say I must decrease and I look forward to the increase of Jesus Christ in my life if it's by my death that Christ increases then so be it if it's by my continued life of service to others then so be it that Jesus Christ would be magnified in all things Is at your heart and your desire I'll be honest with you some days it is for me and some days it isn't What you do is on the days you wake up, and that's not your heart desire, you recognize it. You say, God, I need your kingdom priority to reign in my life. I need the Spirit to bring about and shape my heart and my mind, my affections, my desires. I need you to remind me of the beauty of Christ so that I don't cling to the things of this world. And on the mornings you wake up and you resonate with the purpose of God and the gospel, you thank God because my sinful heart wouldn't have valued what he valued outside of the resurrection of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray this morning that we become people who value as God values in Christ, that in life or in death, we might lay down our desire. He might become less, or he might become more, and we might become less. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that now. Lord Jesus, increase. Increase increase in Troy, Ohio, increase in Gospel Community Church, increase in the lives uh, represented here in this room. And not only that, Lord, we pray that you would do so by muting us, by uh, flattening our desires so that you would be glorified and magnified in us. Lord, receive all glory that you are due. You are the resurrected Messiah. You reign in power and authority. So Lord, let us recognize that power and authority and live for your purpose appropriately. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.